I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's session of Strategic Farming Field Notes. Uh, today, we're going to be covering quite a bit about what's going on in the insect world here. So, um, you know, we've, we've had kind of a few developments going on, uh, both uh, kind of southern Minnesota dealing with a lot of armyworms, but then also northwestern Minnesota, uh, we're looking at a new small grains insect, at least to the area up there. Uh, so to start off, we'll talk to uh, Dr. Ian McCray. He's based out of Crookston, an entomologist up there. And then also we have Bruce Potter, our IPM specialist, based out of Lamberton, southwestern Minnesota on too. So I want to remind folks that these sessions are brought to you by University of Minnesota Extension with very generous support from Minnesota farm families through the Minnesota Corn Research Promotion Council and the Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council. Again, we're glad you could join us today for today's update here. My name is Anthony Hansen. I'm a regional extension educator and integrated pest management based out of Morris. And I think with that, I will hand it off to Dr. E. McCray in just a second here. Um, I do want to say that, you know, one of the programs that we have in extension is what we call our Western IPM scale program. This is funded both by the Minnesota wheat growers and Minnesota soybean growers. And it was about two weeks ago that uh, both our scouts started finding an insect in northwestern Minnesota, specifically Norman, Monoman, and a little bit in Red Lake County. And this was a cereal leaf beetle. And we found out uh, partly through Ian that it was the first find in northwestern Minnesota. So Ian, do you want to talk a little bit about, you know, what's the big deal with cereal leaf beetle here? And um, kind of why that was kind of both an exciting find but also a worrisome find for the area. Sure, thanks, Anthony. Um, well, uh, cereal leaf beetle is um, can potentially cause economic loss in wheat. Um, it, it's in basically all the states that surround us. We, uh, in, in my time up here, we had not seen it in in uh, small grains. Um, the MDA doesn't have a report of it being collected up here in in small grains. Uh, I spoke to one of the local, uh, a couple of the local scouts. They had don't recall seeing it. Um, Bruce Potter, who was up here, uh, actually, Bruce, you were up here before I was. Uh, you were up here in the nineties, I guess. Early I'm older, new R two, Ian. Yeah, but only by a few months. <laughs> oh. But um, Bruce seems to remember seeing it, so it might not necessarily be the first time that it's been here. And it wouldn't be unusual to have an insect come in and, and you know disappear if the environmental conditions weren't right and have a reinvasion when they were. Um, what we do know about this particular insect is that it's uh, boy, what a charmer to work with. Um, the adults are quite distinctive. They're about a quarter of an inch long, but they have very, very dark metallic blue uh, wing cover. So the 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 posterior portion of the of the insect is covered by this really bright dark blue and it's very metallic and, and uh, then their thorax where the legs are attached in their head are a very vibrant orange 
So they're not hard to miss. The adults really aren't hard to miss, but they're not around for a long time. Uh, they overwinter as adults, so the adults will emerge in the in the spring. They're usually uh, very similar to a lot of other beetles. They'll overwinter in leaf cover and duff in in the you know hedgerows and and, and uh, shoulder belts. Move into a field. They mate, lay eggs. They don't feed a lot in the spring. A little bit. Uh, the eggs will hatch, and you have these larvae. Now these are just charming little creatures because they're a uh, uh, a light yellow color and against the green of a, of a cereal grain, they would really stand out. So they cover themselves with mucus and their own feces. And now they're this really dark brown to black blob that actually, it kind of resembles a little bit like a slug, but it also looks like bird droppings uh, some when they're very small. And so I, uh, you know, it's probably a method of avoiding predation. Um, if they get old, is that the, do you know of any other insects that we deal with in the at least the field crop side of things that do that? Because yeah, that's not something no, uh, thank, I should say even for entomologists, no. it's odd. Yeah. yeah. Thank God, no. So there's other leaf um, beetles that do that though, like yeah. the dogbane yeah, leaf beetle. And one on uh, lily as well that will do it. I know lily leaf beetles will do the same thing. Um, and they all also seem to have this bright, many of them seem to have this bright yellow color as well. So um yeah, they, uh, the the adult or the adults and the the uh, immatures will feed in the same way, and that's they start on the top of the leaf. They're usually on the top of the leaf. They start feeding down through the leaf material, and they stop when they get to the bottom of the the, the bottom leaf cuticle, which leaves this kind of empty area, and it looks like window painting. The adults feed in in rows. They're fairly mobile, and so they're feeding as they're walking up the leaf, uh, and uh, so you have these basically window pane look like tracks as they go up, you know, these very narrow, long tracks. The larvae, which are not uh, as mobile as the adults, they do have legs, but they're not as mobile. And they have a tendency to feed more in a patch across the leaf. That actually turns out to be a lot more damaging simply because when they take right down to the cuticle, that cuticle is going to eventually dry and the rest of the leaf, even if it's fed upon or not, will drop off and you lose a lot of uh, photosynthetic material. Um, there, uh, when the, when the, uh, uh, grain gets into, and I should specify, these are only on, on grassy crops, uh, small grains, grassy weeds, things like that is where you'll find them. Um, when they, uh, as they're kind of feeding and, and uh, uh, moving around, you, you kind of have a tendency to see them they move over to the flag leaf when the flags start developing. And then they're very, very evident. It's, it's not hard to find them really. Um, the thresholds are, are reasonably low, which makes us, you know, be, because they can cause a lot of damage. When the plants are small, you know, very, you know, maybe little six leaf plants, you, you, the threshold is three, leaf, uh, three eggs or three larvae per plant. Uh, when they get a little bit older and the boot and the flag starts coming up, it's one larvae per, per flag leaf. And a lot of that has to do with how, how devastating they can be to a flag leaf. Uh, we know this thing is, I've talked to uh, Dr. Jan Kenoda over in North Dakota. She's dealt with this an awful lot more than, than I have. And so I gave her a call and took a short, you know, serial leaf beetle 101 course from her. And she's been dealing with this for uh, several years now. And she seems to think that they're moving west or moving east rather out of Montana. And that seems to be how they're kind of moving across North Dakota. She said they find it most years in a number of different counties, uh, but usually it's not at economic populations and she said occasionally you'll get a, a a very similar to what we're seeing here 
Uh, occasionally you'll get a field that has a heavy population, but most of the ones that we've run into here, uh, it's you'll find the damage, but it's oftentimes hard to find a larvae. And there is a lot of natural mortality with this insect. There's parasites and, and uh, parasitoids and predators. And so I, I think we may not be seeing a huge outbreak, but um, I, I can tell you we're, where we're, we are and are not finding it. Um, we're uh, finding uh, populations in, in Minoman uh, and in Norman. We've, we've recovered them both. Uh, we were, the uh, one field that we first found, uh, and it was one of the ones that the IPM scouts found, uh, was actually heavily populated. And at one point, it probably was at a point where it was over threshold, but the vast majority of threshold uh, of fields have not been. In fact, that was the only one that I saw that, that was even close. Yeah, Ian, so, I'm remembering the numbers a little bit too. And I think one of the first fields we sent you to, at least the scout found about 25% oh, of the plants were infested. And I think mm -hmm. that's when you said that was, was a threshold in the past. It was a little bit too in late. The past, based on the, yeah, based on the feeding, I would say there used to be an awful lot more larvae in there than what we saw. Uh, the distribution was very even across the field. I mean, I was, we were walking transects to the field, uh, you know, even strung out. We, we had about uh, five people in the field and you could find damage all the way out into the middle of the field and you could find larvae all the way out of the field. Uh, yep. So, we had yeah, another we field too, um, Red Lake yeah. County. That one had about 33%, but that's a research trial plot, actually. Uh, that well, field of wasn't involved yeah, in, but that one. We didn't members. So, yeah. We did not, we did scout down Highway 9, and we, uh, coming back from um, one of the other things we were doing out there, and we did not find it on any of the wheat fields in, on 9. Uh, we did find it up to, I think, about 15 to 20 miles away from that one very heavy one. So, yeah. Yeah. So if, uh, well, one, those are, you know, counties, at least for a lot of folks in Southern Minnesota, that's far Northwestern for them. Um, that is, is this an insect that folks should be keeping an eye out for across the rest of the state? I know Southeastern Minnesota, roughly. Um, it actually had been documented back and um, MDA did a survey around 2010 and historically been found on there. But from our conversation, it sounds like it hasn't really been economic threshold where people notice it too often down there. Yeah, and that's what I'm starting to think. Given the distribution, this is not something that's probably just come into this area in, in one year, but I'm guessing at this point, because we don't know what the full distribution is. We don't know how long they've been there, but the populations are so low in some fields that it's entirely possible this is just something that's been here for a while and we've just missed. Um, we really, there was one field we were in that we, we really had to look hard in. We did find a little bit of damage and we found one larvae and that was after being in that field for about an hour. Um, so they, they are, they, it, it's possible they could be there at very low populations. And we know they're close. They're in Walsh County, which is the county that's on the border right above Grand Forks. And so we do know that they're, you know, they're relatively proximal to Minnesota. If you're that close, it's, the river does not, does not make much of a barrier for an insect that'll fly. So. So we will have some links in the chat and if folks do want to look up a, uh, article that just came out last week on Minnesota Crop News. Uh, just type in cereal leaf beetle and you should see the article there too. Um, that'll have more information on um, what we look at for scouting and thresholds. But Ian, what are the options we have for insecticides for this insect and how well do they work considering you, know, you have that mucus layer on that? Is that affecting efficacy at all or are the insecticides working pretty well? Well, um, most of the insecticides that I saw were, uh, you know, you've got fairly good um, 
when I went on to the arthropod trials, most of the pyrethroids seemed to be working fairly well. There wasn't a lot of resistance being reported with this insight. Um, and the other one is the, um, um, if there are certain uh, diamines that are also available, but I think that might be overkill if the pyrethroids are working, that, you know, that, that's the low price point and then they seem to work well. So that would probably be, you know, the first thing to go to. All right. Um, I think we will move over to Bruce and some of the other insect issues we have. But Ian, um, we'll definitely come back to you for Northwestern Minnesota because I think we'll talk about some, uh, you know, dry season insects and what's also happening with that. Because again, drought showing up in some parts of the state, likely to show up in more counties this coming week here unless we get some rain. So there definitely are some insects we're keeping an eye out for. So Bruce, first, we've had a lot of calls about true armyworm the last oh, week or two at least. And some of these are ones where you know they're kind of wrapping up, there may not be as much they can do about it, but what have you seen for true armyworm caterpillars are getting calls in that, um, both for concerns about what's in uh, our field crops, but then also what's happening in pastures too? Because there've been apparently a few calls coming in Southeastern Minnesota, especially where folks fed close to maybe 50 larvae per square foot in some cases. Well, I mean, we've been worried about armyworms and black cutworms uh, all spring. We run some pheromone traps and light traps uh, for, for both of those insects. And and uh, in the southern part of the state, when we had those heavy rains come through, that uh, uh, those were systems that brought uh, migrating insects in from the south. Uh, you know, I, had, I haven't, I think I was on one of these previous uh, webcasts, but... Uh, you know, I caught my personal record for uh, armyworms in a single night in a light trap. That was 195, and then uh, quite a few the following night. So some pretty big flights have come in on both species. We've had uh, uh, in injury uh, to a lot of injury to pastures and, and uh, grass hayland, that sort of thing, uh, but also in corn, uh, particularly where uh, corn was planted into rye, and I think we've had uh, people alerted to that. They should have been out scouting both of those areas because of the high flights. Um, I think the I think the thing to realize here is that we've got a lot of uh, we've had a wet, we've had kind of a perfect storm, especially in southeast Minnesota, where it's drier. In that. We had weather systems that brought a lot of moths in. Uh, we had, they were looking for dense grasses to lay eggs on, uh, in case of armyworms, whether that be uh, a rye cover crop or, or uh, some sort of uh, perennial grass. Then we had a dry condition set up and that kind of slowed crop growth. So those larvae ran out of food quicker and were encouraged to move faster. Um, and that's where they get the, the term armyworm. Uh, when they run out of food, those larvae will move in mass. So um, that's kind of what we're dealing with right now. There's been multiple flights. And so we've got a, a quite a range of larval sizes out there. And uh, we're going to have some issues here for a while. Um, and it's not just southeast Minnesota. I know they've had some bigger flights up into northwest Minnesota. So uh, we're going to have to keep an eye out for for the, at least the next few weeks. Yeah, that was actually one of the questions I had was um, 
kind of how long we really need to be keeping an eye out for if people are seeing an issue right now and one when and where should they be treating if we're talking about field crops um you know our corn how long is that susceptible for uh if they have grass edges but then also pastures when is it economical to treat pasture especially in these drought conditions is it something where if you see high numbers in your pastures and you're already short on forage out there is that something you need to be out there ahead of treating pretty heavily or is it a little bit difficult especially if some of these larvae are more mature out there well i think uh really if the guys are wanting their hay crap um they want to protect it from um the insects taking it um the threshold is the same for for grasslands and, and hay ground as it is for small grains four or five larvae per square foot um i think the other thing that happens is is movement out of those areas kind of similar i think maybe ian will talk about grasshoppers later on but uh you don't want the, the larvae to move out of those areas into into your field crops either particularly corn and so I think, uh, you know, treatment should have happened in some of those fields earlier. Um, some people didn't find the problem in their hay ground uh, until they were out there mowing. Um, but uh, I think, I think definitely treating the treating treating where these larvae are starting from um, is a good idea, or at least a border on those areas before they get into the crop. It's uh, row crops. And I think you mentioned black cutworm earlier too. Um, what have you been seeing happening with that? Well, we've had some pretty significant issues. A lot of uh, some uh, some of the southern Minnesota beet growers have had quite a few kind of have had quite a struggle with cutworm, cutworms this year. Uh, some of that's the same situation. A lot of guys are uh, planting uh, an oat cover crop uh, to prevent erosion. Um, that's a little bit attractive to the moths, and then when they kill that oat oats off. Uh, they'll move to the sugar beets, and small sugar beets uh, uh, don't uh, stand up to cutworms very well. Um, it's multiple species of cutworms in the beets, actually. Um, you know, we've had some variegated cutworm issues. There's some of those in alfalfa as well. Again, another migrant. Um, and I just got a picture last night of uh, yellow-striped armyworms in sugar beets. So um, it's it's definitely a year for migrating moth insects. Uh, uh, I think uh, something we're going to have to keep an eye on, particularly with, with this drier weather, some of the diseases aren't going to help control the, the insects as well. So I've had a few other questions come in. And just a reminder to folks too, you can use the Q&A if you have any questions, if you're on the um, chat itself here. But uh, soybean gall niche, um, are there any updates on that one? Or is it kind of too early to be able to tell um, what the situation is looking like this year for where mites might be showing up or severity. Well, I was down at our research site in Rock County yesterday afternoon, and we've been uh, monitoring emergence cages. And I think the populations were are, are fairly low again this year. And we didn't haven't picked up any in the emergence cages, but we do have some uh, plants being infested now. Uh, there's a few orange larvae, so they've been there maybe a week or more, but most of them are are still fairly fairly small first instars. So. Um, that infestation is going on right now. Okay. So I think people are going to be asking about soybean aphid. We'll try to have a, another session on that coming up here soon. Um, but yeah, it sounds like soybean aphid, that one has been showing up. Some people are finding in fields, but obviously not threshold levels yet. Uh, a little too early for that one there. 
Um, but kind of the main question that I'm getting here is on grasshoppers. So both Bruce and Ian, I can hand that one off to both of you here, depending on what you're seeing. But I know I'm seeing plenty of small grasshoppers in some of the hay fields out here. Um, not anything too concerning yet in West Central Minnesota, but um, high enough populations now, I definitely want to keep an eye on it. Is that kind of the situation you both are seeing in your neck of the woods, or are you actually getting pretty high numbers out there? I'm seeing I'm seeing really high numbers in uh, alfalfa, red-legged grasshoppers, uh, and it kind of makes sense. We've had uh, at least in this area, we've we've had uh, two years of drought, dry weather, um, actually severe drought. Um, so I think that's something people should watch. And again, it's uh, um, it's a case where you know if you if you're seeing those those uh, nymphs in in uh, these production areas the hay or or grasslands next to it uh keep an eye on that because they they probably won't stay there yeah i concur i don't think our populations are as high as bruce has seen down in the southwest but we are starting to see stuff in the northwest um and like he says it's uh, you know we're starting to see nymphs um we've had i've had calls already which is you know early in the season uh, I think we probably had a little bit more rain in the in the fall and maybe a little bit more early spring. So our populations might not necessarily be as high. Uh, certainly the recipe for, you know, grasshopper populations any years, uh, you know, dry spring or dry fall followed by a dry spring is going to give you grasshoppers. Um, like I said, we're probably not as high as, as Bruce, but yeah, that's something people should be watching and scouting for and hitting the edges of the fields. And, seeing what their populations are like, something that, that should be on their radar screen, yeah. Yeah, that's a good reminder for folks too. Um, if, I think we've hit on it a few times over the years here, but grasshoppers are a dry season pest, partly just because, um, you know, when it's wet, you have more mortality due to um, fungi that might go after grasshoppers. Um, Bruce or Ian, do you want to talk a little bit more about kind of those conditions of, you know, when they do well versus um, why they don't do well then? Well, the worst. The worst thing for, and I, I want to uh, just make a comment here, it's not every field in every area that's got grasshoppers, um, you know, so it depends a lot on, on you know, the previous year's weather and, mm -hmm. and uh, particularly last fall and, and uh, this early spring. But uh, the worst thing for grasshopper nymphs, and Ian, I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is is when those nymphs are hatching, if you have a cool, wet period, um, there's two things that happen. One is disease. One is they're, it's too cold for them to move and they starve to death. Uh, so, yeah. um, we haven't had that this spring. Uh, uh, and, and the species I'm seeing right now are species that tend to hatch late, later, like the red legged two stripes and are, are, I'm not seeing much of all at all. Okay. Yeah. I think our populations are a little heavier for two stripes up here than, than down there. They're a little bit more common. And it could be also because they're, I mean, red lakes have a tendency to, to prefer that hotter, drier, you know, hotter, warmer, drier climates than, than the two legs do, or the two stripes do. But um, we used to get a lot of red lakes down in, you know, high plains in Colorado. So that's kind of why I was thinking that. Yeah. But the, um, uh, yeah, Bruce is 100% is right. If, if you, if they're, the wrong conditions for grasshopper at the you know at the early season and when they're hatching out is a great condition for us. Uh, you know, if you, they're very that's by far the most um, 
it's by far the most sensitive stage in their lives. They don't, you know, when they're emerging, if they don't find food within a meter, they're probably not going to oh, make yeah. it through. So, and that's one of the reasons why those hot, you know, the, those hot dry springs are, um, if it's followed a hot dry fall, you can, you can, you can start to see hoppers, but um, if you've got that cool period and it's moist, the fungal diseases are going to take off. As, as Bruce had said, that's going to have a lot of mortality on the young. Um, and as he said, moving is is critical. They've got to feed. They, there's not a lot of, of resources, food resources, nutritive resources in a grasshopper egg. And so they need to take on calories pretty quick. And if they can't move or if it's you know, bare ground or something, they can't get to food, it's going to be pretty tough for them. So. so we've been talking about, you know, forages a bit here, um, especially on the army worm side, and you know, that applies to grasshoppers. We're finding a lot of it. How about soybeans, though? When is that um, kind of a more susceptible crop? Are we looking at that later in the season, or do we have enough defoliation now? We'd be worried about our soybeans. For which? For grasshoppers? For grasshoppers, yes. Well, I think I think. Uh... You know, Ian's got uh, more two stripes up there in, in northwest Minnesota, northern part of the state. And down here, those are kind of replaced by differential. Um, mm. You know, they're larger grasshoppers. They hatch, the differentials hatch later. But uh, differentials and red-leggeds particularly will lay eggs and soybeans, um, especially if the, they like firm ground, bare ground. So um, no-till type situations um, are preferred. Uh that alfalfa is perfect for them because it's there's a lot of bare ground in amongst the plants. Um, and I think the other thing to worry about, not so much on, on uh, grass hay, but on alfalfa is, is uh, blister beetle larvae feed on the eggs. And if you've got high populations of grasshoppers in those alfalfa fields laying eggs, uh, you're, you have a tendency to pull in blister beetles. And then now, now you've got an issue for hay quality, uh, particularly with horses. Actually, that was, we've gotten some calls on those blister beetles lately too, Bruce. I know we've talked about that on our crops calls before. And um, yeah, I've had some fields too, where I've seen the gray blister beetles showing up um, in our alfalfa on the edges uh, in central Minnesota. And you know, if you have the beef cattle, they're a little more tolerant to that. But yeah, like you said, horses, uh, that's more of a concern there. So I think the take home was with blister beetles, and this can kind of be our wrap up question here for folks. Um, that's one where we're saying that, you know, if you're going to mow, give it some time for those beetles to disperse. Don't be crimping it or spraying insecticide because that's a case where you just have the beetles left in the hay and then you're going to have um, you know, that irritant from the beetles that's going to get into the livestock a lot easier because you're just going to have more beetles out there. Um, Ian or Bruce, do you have any other? thoughts on those blister beetles and kind of what they're up to in the fields? No, just be aware of it. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it can catch people off guard a little bit, I think, given by the nope. uh, calls we're getting in here. Don't don't let that alfalfa bloom because that'll, that'll congregate them in the field as well. All right. Well, I think that we're about time to wrap up here. So again, thanks everyone for attending today's Field Notes program. We want to again thank our sponsors, the Minnesota Soybean Research and Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research Promotion Council. And thanks to Bruce Potter, Dr. Ian McRae for joining us this morning and have a great rest of the day, everyone. And we'll see you next week.